0: You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in depth verse by verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Again, we've been walking through <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we're kind of in a transition, s- kind of a section, if you will. <clears throat> Again, he's been praying, Paul's been praying from verse 15 down to verse 19. And again, he's he's walking through this incredible prayer, and every aspect of the prayer, which is important for us to recognize, is that the emphasis is Jesus. Hey, would you just get all wrapped up in Jesus? Would you fall in love with Jesus? May he be the big deal of your life. Hey, could you get to know Jesus? So obviously, the prayer that Paul is praying for those in Ephesus, and then by extension, uh, the disciples in the world, even today, is that, hey, would you get, would you allow your life to be all wrapped up in Jesus? So Jesus is the big deal of the prayer itself. Now, the last time we were together, we were looking at verse 20, and again, it's interesting that as you move from verse 19 to verse 20, uh, it's almost like, it's not that Paul has finished praying, he hasn't said amen, in fact, he, he doesn't say amen anywhere in our, in, our, in our prayer, but it's like as he gets into verse 19 and transitions into verse 20, it's like he's in the middle of the prayer, he's talking about, oh, that you would know the overwhelming power of God, and in the middle of talking about the power of God, he goes, oh, I, I gotta start teaching. So it's almost like... He stops praying and he starts teaching. You know, some people like teaching their prayers. Paul's like just praying in his teaching and his teaching and his, I don't know how you want to talk about that. But regardless, the idea is he's praying, he's given this exhortation of just this, man, I really want God to get all wrapped up in your life and you get all wrapped up in him. And, and somehow in the middle of all that, it's like he transitions and he doesn't say amen, but he just starts teaching again. And he jumps into verse 20, talking about this demonstration of the overwhelming power of God. Now, again, as you look at verse 19, and again, this is just review, but as you look at verse 19, Paul, again, is praying that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And again, the idea is and Paul, Paul's saying, how, how do I begin to describe this overwhelming power of God? How, how, do I, how do I get you to understand what this power of God looks like? And again, what Paul does is he uses some... Uh, two rare Greek words, this surpassing greatness idea. Uh, And then he says, well, let me see what I can do. Uh, He goes into the Greek language and he finds four different words for the word power. And he says, let me try to describe the power of God to you because the power of God truly is indescribable. And so what he does is he kind of reaches into the Greek language, pulls out these four different words for the word power and says, do you recognize God has all that? Again, one of those words for power is uh, is the word kratos has this idea of sovereignty, dominion, authority, power. It's it's like what a king has. A king has a scepter. He has the power. He has the authority. That's the idea. Uh, Paul says that uh, God has ischis, meaning the resource and the ability. He has the oomph, uh, the ability to do something. Not only that, God has the dunamis, which is like the demonstration of that ability. So God is marching into your world, producing some effect, that God is doing something. That's this idea. And then the other one is energia, which is this idea of it's the flow, it's the inner that which energizes, that which brings along that kind of an idea. So Paul says, do you recognize that God in his overwhelming power, hey, you you need to recognize that God has power. Not just that he has power, but he has has overwhelming power and he's willing to work in your life. Which is an encouraging thought if you think about it. Because I don't know what it is in your life, and I don't I don't know what it is that you're dealing with, but it's like, can can God handle my situation? Hey, can God handle the giants of my life? Can, can God handle the struggles and the difficulties and the finances and the family and the students of my life? Just kidding, right? But, but hey, can God handle the stuff that I'm dealing with? And the reality is, yes. Why? He's powerful. It's not that he just has a little bit of power and he might be able to, he might not be able to. He has overwhelming power. and In fact, his power is indescribable. And so whatever it is that you're dealing with, you recognize that God is able, that he's able to handle your difficulty your situation your problem your situation i mean he's he's capable so can we trust him can we rest in that reality now again you walk up to paul and you say okay paul that's great it makes sense to me but could you give me an example and paul says oh i'd love to give you an example in fact i'm going to give you four examples example 1 which is what we're in the middle of now goes from verse 20 down to verse 23 you want to see the power of god demonstrated Look at the life of Jesus. Number two is verses uh, chapter two, verse one through uh, one through one through ten. God says, "Look at yourself." That what God is doing in your life spiritually becomes a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God, and that should be the reality of our life today. That when someone looks at our lives, they should see a demonstration of the power of God. Again, that the only way they can explain how you are living your life should be Jesus. Uh, the third example. <clears throat> is uh, chapter 2, verse 11, down to the end of the chapter, which is the church. And so God, uh, Sorry, Paul says, do you recognize what God is doing in the church is he's taking two groups that has always had hostility with one another, and he's bringing them together and making them one, which is kind of a phenomenal thought. And then the fourth example is Paul himself, which is the first half of chapter 3. So Paul says, let me try to describe the power of God to you. The power of God is overwhelmingly indescribable. But let me do my best. Now, we're in that first example, which again goes from verse 20 down to verse 23. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, what I want to do is I want to read verses 19 down to the end of the chapter, just so that this is in our mind and fresh. So, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 19. He says, I pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he performed or worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. Amen incredible reality so again paul is talking about the power of god being demonstrated in the life of jesus and he begins in verse 20 and again uh i'm not sure how you want to break this down uh, i was looking at the passage and I, and I broke this into i think it's uh five sections i'll just come to you really quick if you want to hear this i uh, wish means we're probably going to take us five sermons to get through the rest of this chapter hey we're this is good this is good Uh, The first section for me is the very beginning of verse 20, uh, which he performed in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I'm calling this the performance or the demonstration. Uh, This is the fact that God reached his hand into the deadness of Jesus and raised Jesus physically from physical deadness into physical life. That is amazing. What an incredible demonstration of the power of God. Uh, So again, the beginning of verse 20, I'm calling the performance. Now the second half of verse 20 the fact that he is seated at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above, verse 21, principalities, power, might, dominion, I'm calling the position. So not only has this, is there's this performance idea of God reaching into the deadness of Jesus and bringing him into the life, but there's this idea of position, that he's now been given a position far above all things. In verse 22, I'm calling verse 22 this idea that he puts all things in subjection, under his feet and made him head over all things to the church. Uh, I'm calling that the preeminence, that Christ, as Colossians says, that in all things Christ may have the preeminence, that it's, it's the focus of Jesus. This is, hey, he, he's in the supreme position. This is all about one thing, which is Jesus. Now, at the very beginning of verse 23, talking about the body of Christ, I'm talking about, uh, I'm calling that the person. As you start noticing, I'm having an alliteration thing going on here. I'm calling the person. And then the second half of verse 23, I'm calling the purpose. So I have the performance, the position, the preeminence, the person, and the purpose. It just sounds like good preacher talk, right? With all the alliteration. Uh, regardless, what I want to do is I want to look at that first one uh, with you this morning and to look at verse 20, this idea of the performance or the demonstration. Again, verse, the beginning of verse 20 says, speaking about the power of God, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, do you recognize, this is gonna, I know this is going to be a crazy thought, you recognize that Jesus is not dead? Please contain your excitement. Isn't that a great thought? Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, none of you look impressed. <laughs> My guess is, you know, if you grew up in church at all, and you know, went through Sunday school, you're just like, yeah, 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 I, I know the story. I saw the flannel board. I got the t-shirt. I I get this thing. But do you recognize that our Savior is not dead? He is raised from the dead. You need to be raised from the dead. You guys must be tired. This is exciting stuff. I mean, this is like run the aisles with white hankies kind of stuff. That our God is not dead. Please stay seated. But our God is not dead. Thank you. (laughs) This one person's excited. Isn't it, isn't it a phenomenal thought that here is Jesus, who is God himself. We recognize that. But Jesus died. And we're like, all the hopes and all the dreams and all, all, the, all the plans for the future that we had, you recognize died with Jesus if he did not rise from the dead. But the moment that he rose from the dead, you recognize that this, this changes Everything. It's interesting to me that you look at the you look at the modern landscape there is not a single scholar that I know who who will argue that Jesus was not a historical character. They all say Jesus was a historical character. There's so much evidence historically that Jesus literally walked on this planet 2000 years ago. That that's not the issue. No no one debates at all whether or not Jesus was a historical person. The issue is whether he actually rose from the dead. There is, there's this huge debate. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? In fact, the debate was happening in the time of Jesus. And you know the story. The, the, the soldiers go up to the, the Pharisees, and they say, um, <laughs> you have a problem. <laughs> you know? This is not word for word of King James, by the way. This is just talking the story. Right, but you, you have a problem. They say, well, what's the problem? Well, we were there, we were guarding, and we all hit the ground, and he came out, <laughs> you know, and, and of course, the Pharisees hide up the, they, they hide up the whole thing. Well, just, just why don't you guys say that you guys fell asleep and the disciples came and took the body, that there was a cover up even in the beginning. And the Pharisees, by the way, grammatically in, in the language, <clears throat> uh, in Matthew especially, you cannot get away the fact that the Pharisees knew exactly what happened. This wasn't like, well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. They knew what happened. And they were so dead set against not allowing him to have a voice that they covered it up purposely. And there's been a cover-up all, all since that point. And isn't it interesting? Again, no one, no one today debates whether or not he was a historical character. The debate today is, well, did he actually rise from the dead? So you've got to ask the question, why does that even matter? Haven't you ever asked the question, why, does it, why is it important that Jesus raised from the dead? Now, I mean, and my guess is if you, if you sit there and think about it, you know, we can come up with some good quick answers, right? But do you recognize that without the resurrection, Christianity is, there is no Christianity. That, that what you and I hold tight to, what you and I believe in, if there was no resurrection, then we have nothing. If there was no resurrection, you have no hope. If there was no resurrection, hey, there's there's nothing for you. If there is no resurrection, so you begin to recognize that the resurrection then, if you want to say it this way, is, is like the linchpin of our faith. That everything hinges on the fact that he rose from the dead. Does that make sense? That this is not just, well, praise the Lord, he rose from the dead. But this, is, this becomes essential. This is absolutely, down to it, overwhelmingly, Important. Uh, it's interesting that uh, the idea of the resurrection was the message of the early church. Uh, l- let me just give you a few passages. Uh, Acts two thirty-two. <clears throat> Peter is speaking uh, right after Pentecost, and Peter says, "This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Do you realize what Peter is proclaiming? Jesus is alive. And that became a central tenet of the preaching, the message of the early church. Acts 4, 1 through 2. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So why were the Pharisees ticked off? Why, why did they keep trying to sh- shut down the disciples? Why was it like, uh, you can, just, you go over there and do your thing, just don't talk about Jesus and the resurrection. Why were they getting so annoyed? Because the message they were proclaiming, the message that they were willing to be persecuted for was, he's risen. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, verse 20, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance of all by raising him from the dead. Do you recognize that the reason we can have an assurance, hey, the reason that we know that there's hope for the future is because the one in whom we love and worship is risen from the dead. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8 tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul says, you know what I'm preaching? Do you know what the essence of my, of my message is? The resurrection from the dead. That I'm not preaching about, there's this great guy, he died upon the cross. Woo, woo, woo. Because that's not my message. My message is, ah, there was this great guy who died upon the cross, and he rose again. Woo, woo, woo. Right? That's the message. And you recognize that the gospel, according to Paul, wasn't just that Jesus died, that's, that's important. We need him to die. He shouldn't have had to die, I get that. And there was no reason for him to die outside of his overwhelming love for us. Because he could have just sent us off into the abyss and just flicked us into hell for eternity, and, and that, hey, that would have been fine. But he says, no, I, 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 I love you too much, I'm not going to let all that take place. We need an innocent sacrifice, so I'm going to come, I'm going to die for my people. So it was because of his great love, of which he died for us. But it's not that doesn't where, that's not where it ends. Well, where does it end? Oh, he rose. That's not even where it ends. He ascended. That's not even where it ends. He's returning! So you begin to recognize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not some add-on. It wasn't just some, well, let's just talk about the cross. It's all about the cross. Woo, the beautiful cross. It is... But the cross is only beautiful because there is a resurrection. Tons of people died upon crosses. Tons of people died a physical, horrible, painful death upon a cross. What makes the death of Jesus so significant and so different? Well, one, he's God. I get that. He was the perfect sacrifice. That's absolutely true. But he was raised from the dead. So again, it comes back to this question of why not only was it just the key message for the early church, but why for us is it so important for Jesus to be raised from the dead? So let me give you a couple ideas. Number one, it reveals the power of God. Now, obviously that's clear even just in our passage, that the resurrection proves that God is sovereign over all life and death. That God is the one in control. That God is the one with the power. That here is a father who reaches into the physical deadness of Jesus and takes a physically dead Jesus and brings him into physical life. <sighs> and Paul says that is a demonstration of the power of God. That's amazing. I don't know if God can handle my situation. Well, God can raise dead people from, from the dead. I think he can handle your problems. That's encouraging, actually. So you're going to recognize, at least according to Paul, that the resurrection, one of the reasons it's important is because the resurrection itself is a demonstration. It becomes a portrayal of the overwhelming power of our God. Number two, I think another reason why it's important that the resurrection happened is because it distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Isn't it interesting that there's all these religions in the world today? And all their leaders are dead. Buddha is not coming. Muhammad is gone. Right? Then there's, there's all these people who are living in worship, but it is a false worship. Why? Because all that they're worshiping is dead. It's just graven image kind of stuff. It's just dumb stuff. But we do not worship like that. Christians, we are not worshiping some cross. We don't worship some mystical idea we worship a person who is alive who can actually accept our worship who can actually have communion and intimacy and relationship with us and the amazing reality about what we have in our faith is that it's not just that god is out there somewhere and we're trying to appease him so let's just you know let's give him some worship and let's give him some sacrifice and let's throw him some money you know it's not that kind of stuff It's that God wants to be involved in our life and he wants to have relationship and intimacy. And because our God is alive, you recognize that we can have that. And our God who is alive has sent his spirit to us to invade our life. This this is on a whole nother level kind of thing. Why? Because he's risen from the dead. So you should get excited. Third you realize that because Jesus is risen from the dead, it gives us as Christians hope for the future of of our resurrection. Thank you. Isn't it interesting that scripture is clear that Jesus came as the first fruits. And the whole idea, by the way, it's it's a whole imagery thing in in the culture of the Jews, but the first fruits, uh, the big festival would happen and they they would go to their harvest, they would take some of the the harvest and they'd bring it down to the temple and they would say priest here's 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 the first fruit of my harvest the rest of my harvest is going to look just like this hey the rest of what, what i'm about to plow up is going to look just like this so i'm offering this as a first fruit of a sacrifice to show what what the harvest is going to be like paul says you know what jesus is he is our first fruits yeah he, he's the first thing that we look at and go whoo yep do you, know what, do you know what's coming after him? A harvest. It's going to look just like that. Isn't it neat that the resurrection of Jesus actually gives us hope of our future resurrection? That you get a you get a body. And Jesus got to eat, which means you get a digestive tract. Woo! Please stay please stay seated. Control yourself. I mean, you recognize that there is hope. Why? Because when Jesus is risen from the dead, what, begins to re- what i what I've begin to recognize is it's because of his sacrifice and his resurrection that there's actually a hope for me in my future resurrection. That, yeah, I may die. Sorry, let me rephrase that. I will die at some point in the future. But you recognize that there is hope for resurrection. That there, it's not that I'm just going to skip it on clouds one day. It's that God's actually going to bring restoration and there is a f- hope for a future resurrection. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 22 through 22. Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall be made all alive. A few verses later, in 53 through 55, Paul continues and says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable put, puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, you recognize that you can actually have hope in the future. You can be on your deathbed and still have hope. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Isn't this awesome? Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus becomes essential to his identity. Without the resurrection, do you realize that his identity actually becomes tarnished? Romans 1.4. Paul writes, and was declared, Jesus, to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how was he declared to be the son of God in power? By his resurrection. So his resurrection then is the declaration. It's the wah, wah, wah kind of signal saying, hey, do you know what his identity is? Do you know who our Jesus is? He is to be declared the son of God. How? Resurrection. Not just his identity, but number five, it is also a, it becomes essential or a revelation of his character. You recognize that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Jesus is a liar, and we should not believe anything he ever said. Because if he's not truthful in one part, we can't trust him in any part. So if Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to rise from the dead, and he didn't rise from the dead, then we we have to question everything. But if Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead, and he did, in fact, rise from the dead, do you recognize that that declares his character? That he is who he said he was. Which means you should believe him in every part. Listen to this. Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus says, hey, you know what's going to happen? Hey, beaten bruised, scourged, crucified, risen. So is Jesus a liar? No, because the fact that he rose from the dead is a declaration that he's not just truthful, he is truth itself. So when he speaks, we can actually believe him because he cannot lie. That's encouraging. So the resurrection is a demonstration or a confirmation of his very character. Number six, it becomes essential. The resurrection is essential to the ministry of Jesus. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, his ministry ended in defeat. What was the point? If he did not rise from the dead, he would not be our great high priest who is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even right now. This very moment. If he did not rise from the dead, he would not be head of the church. He'd be dead. If he did not rise from the dead, he would not have sent forth his spirit to indwell our lives, to enable us to live out the life that you and I are called to live as believers. See, all of that hinges on the fact that he needed to rise from the dead. So the resurrection then becomes essential to fulfilling the ministry that Jesus had. And that's amazing. And number seven, it becomes essential to the gospel itself. In other words, if he did not rise from the dead, there is no gospel. There is no hope. There is no future. All is in vain. Do you recognize that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just an add-on. It's not just something that we sing about on on Sunday mornings. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to our faith. It's the linchpin of all Christianity. If you have your Bibles, turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is making an argument for the resurrection. And what I want to do is, Paul. It's interesting that we just walked through seven ideas. Paul gives you six more evidences or reasons why the resurrection is essential. Just in this passage, so I want to read this. So I want to give you the six. Just kind of highlight them really quick to you, because again, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely down to it, fundamental, essential, critical to our faith. So look at this. So this is one Corinthians chapter four. Uh, sorry, one Corinthians chapter fifteen, starting at verse fourteen. He says, "If Christ had not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we would then be found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God raised raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up. Sorry, whom He did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ is not raised, your faith is vain." And you are still in your sins. Verse 18. Then they also who had fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we may have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Paul in that little passage says, do you recognize that the resurrection from the dead isn't just Well, yeah, that'd that'd be really awesome. Ooh, yeah, that's important. Paul says everything of our faith holds on the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. And he gives six reasons. He says if Jesus did not rise from the dead, I'll give them to you just really quick. Number one, our preaching would be in vain. That word vain has this idea of empty or pointless. He says if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you realize that what we proclaim is dumb. It's pointless. It's just empty. Why? There's no oomph behind it. There's nothing to to hold to. Why? It's just all empty, dead. Paul says, number two, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, your faith would be in vain. What, What would you put your hope in? What would you put your faith in? It would just be empty if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It would be pointless. So, hey, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then why are you sitting here? says Paul, that all all the stuff that you've been doing, all the church services you've ever gone to would be completely pointless and empty if he did not rise from the dead. Number three, he says all the witnesses of the resurrection would be liars. Did you know, think about this, that when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't like just one person saw him. Now, if there was one witness, we could discount it. For a Jew, you had to have two to three witnesses for it to be credible. There wasn't even two to three witnesses. Do you know how many witnesses there were of the resurrection? We know that there were at least 500 that were, that, that raised, for, that were raised from the dead with Christ. And could you imagine you would buried Aunt Jemima somewhere, you know, and months have gone by and Jesus pops out of the grave and Aunt Jemima comes and knocks on your door and you're like, what just happened? There's all these people. Paul says that there were not only just people also raised from the dead, but there were all these witnesses of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that the disciples were hanging out with Jesus for 40 solid days, according to Acts chapter 1. That Jesus was right before the ascension, between the resurrection and the ascension, there were these days, and Jesus was spending those days with them and giving them teaching and clarifying things. And all likelihood, the 120 were there. The 120 in the upper room, we're all there with Jesus the whole time for those 40 days. So, hey, maybe one person, yeah, we can discount that. Two or three, yeah, they may have been on drugs. But when you, have, when you have 12, when you have 100, when you have 500, when you have all these people who are witnessing the resurrection from the dead, not everybody can be on pills. Not everyone can be drunk for 40 solid days. Does that make sense? And in fact, did you know that right at this very moment, we have more evidence For the resurrection of Jesus, think about this. We have more historical evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead than we do that George Washington was the first president of this country. None of us sit here and go, I wonder if George Washington really existed. Well, I know he's a historical character, but I don't know if he really was the first president. Do you know that we never question that one? But we have more historical evidence... For the fact that Jesus rose from the dead then we do that George Washington was our president. Paul says, if he did not rise from the dead, then every witness that we, who, who has shared that he rose from the dead has been made a liar. But they're not liars, by the way. You're, a lot of people are willing to lie for a lot of things, but when your life is on the line, people don't lie. Do you know when people died for their faith, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Thousands. Paul says, they're not all on drugs. They're not all liars. In other words, for for you and I, if I can say it this way, you could have confidence and hope that he rose from the dead. That's awesome. Uh, So number one, our preaching would be in vain. Number two, our faith would be in vain or pointless or empty. Number three, all the witnesses of the resurrection would be liars. Paul says, number four, we would still be without salvation you would still be dead in your sins. There would be no hope for victory or salvation. That the only place that you have hope to go to is hell. Why? Because there would would be no shedding of blood. That that the the, the resurrection, if it did not happen, we would be left in our sins, says Paul. So there's no hope. Number five, all former believers in Jesus would have died without hope. He says, everyone who's died even before us, all of them would have, had, would, have been, they would have died in vain. There would have been no hope in their death if there was no resurrection. And six, Paul says, if hope in Christ is limited to this life, in other words, if this is merely just some good, you know, let's, you know it's a gaggle of people who are just like, yeah, let's just believe. And that way, at least in this life, we can be encouraged. And there's, there's people out there who say, you know, those Christians are crazy. And it's all a farce anyway, but you know, whatever brings you hope on this this side of death, Paul says, You recognize that if hope is merely for this side of life, then Christians should be pitied above all people. So Paul says. That so this isn't just some let's satiate and let's just have hope this side of death, and you know, who knows what happens when you die. But hey, those Christians, yeah, they're weird. But at least, you know, if they want hope this side of death, fine, whatever. Paul says, if that, if that is the basis of our hope, if the reality of our hope is only this side of death, then the world should be pitting us above all people because our hope is not this side of death. Isn't it interesting how lightly we take the resurrection of Jesus and yet, biblically, it really is the linchpin of our faith that we should be celebrating the life of Jesus every single day. And I love the fact that we hang up crosses and you know, and we celebrate the death, and we should. But we celebrate the death only because we can celebrate his life. And his death only makes sense in light of the fact that he rose from the dead. We don't just celebrate his death because some man died. A lot of people die. We're not just celebrating his death. We do celebrate and we honor his death. Why? Because it was the death which is the means of my salvation but it's the resurrection that was the focus of the early church. Wouldn't it be interesting if the focus of my life was the risen Lord? Wouldn't it be interesting if if you looked at my life and what you noticed in my life was not just some mere theory, wasn't just some mere talk, wasn't just some mere abstract concept. Wouldn't it be interesting if you looked at my life And what you saw was a celebration of a life. That what you saw in me was a communion of intimacy with the one who is alive. Wouldn't it be neat if when the world saw you, when your family saw you, when your churches saw you, when the world sees you, what they couldn't help but realize is, I think Jesus is alive. How do you know? I don't know, but I look at your life, and it just seems like it's so evident Wouldn't that be neat? By the way, do you know what we call people who live like that? Yeah, I think we call them Christians. Because you recognize that Christians are the ones who not just believe, we're the ones who celebrate his life. Not just his death. His life. Uh, My guess is you know this well, but several years ago, like before all of our times, uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote this great song. And I uh, just want to read it to you. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. <clears throat> it says, God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and fill the pride and joy he gives. But greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain day because he lives. And then one day I'll cross the river, I'll fight life's final war with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see lights of glory and I'll know he reigns. And the chorus says because he lives I can face tomorrow, because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living, just because he lives. Is that true for you? Like, honestly, is that true for you? Is life worth the living just because he lives? Not what you can get from him. Not the fact that you get to go to heaven. Not the fact that you receive gifts. Not the fact that, hey, nothing else. Is life worth the living? Is all the pain worth it just because he lives? And you realize it's actually far better than the song. Because it's not just because he lives. It's the fact that he lives and the fact that he's indwelt my life through his spirit. The fact that he wants to have communion and intimacy with me. I mean, this thing is awesome. But all hinges on the fact that he lives. Do you have bold? confidence and gratefulness in the resurrection of our Savior. Are you wishy-washy on this thing? Because if you're a wishy-washy on this one, if it's like, well, I don't know if he really rose from the dead. I don't really know if I can believe this one. I don't really know. The rest of your faith is going to be wishy-washy. Hey, if this, if this is uncertain, the, what hope do you have? All, all of your hope, according to Paul, is going to be wishy-washy. It's going to be uncertain. Hey, if you want to firm up your faith, if you want to firm up your confidence, firm up the fact in your life that Jesus rose from the dead. And what would it look like practically in your life to live in the hope of each day? Let me say it this way. Wouldn't it be neat to live each day in the hope of his death and resurrection? That what that produces in your life, the hope that that gives, the, the assurance that that can provide you. You realize that I should be able to talk to anybody about the good news that I have. Why? Because I actually know that he rose from the dead. If I recognize that what that's done in my life, why would I want to keep that a secret? See, wouldn't it be neat to, to live in the, in the reality of the joy of his resurrection? See, life can get difficult, and life can put all the pressure upon you. And, But see, life shouldn't beat you down if you live in light of the resurrection. See, I shouldn't be able to get depressed. I know life gets hard. I get that. And you can get exhausted. Hey, I get that too. But you realize that in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that should cause this buoyancy of soul. Shouldn't it? When I recognize that all of my sins have been forgiven... That I can actually have communion with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The fact that I could, the fact that I have a relationship with him. So shouldn't that just cause a see what would it look like to live in light of the hope of his resurrection every single day? See, I think that would change something. And wouldn't it be neat to recognize the fact that Christ was willing to endure the agony of the cross for you? And I get experience the joy of the cross because he lives. I think that's neat. I want to celebrate that. I, I just want to get lost in that reality because he lives. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I don't want to forget the fact that you are alive. And I think at times, even though we're even though we pray to you and even though we sing about you and though we read about you, it's just we kind of forget the fact that you are alive. That you were dead and you died for our sins, which is so incredible. But the Father in his graciousness reached into your physical deadness and yanked you from physical death and brought you in a physical life. Lord, that is amazing to me. Because what that shows is, wow, there's hope for my life. And there's hope after the grave. And that shows that my faith is not in vain. And it shows that I can actually have boldness and confidence in this world. And it shows it's a, it's a demonstration of, of the power that you have, that, that no matter what I'm facing, you can handle it. Well, what would it, what would it look like if I began to recognize that my God is alive and you want relationship with us? It's not just that you were raised from the dead and now you have this you know, distance from us. It's not like you're put off by us or frustrated with us that the reason you, you, you suffered the agony of the cross and you rose from the dead is so that you could bring us into relationship and intimacy and, and oneness and communion. Or as William Law said, that the purpose of the cross was Pentecost. That the reason that you suffered and died and rose again is so that you could dump forth your spirit into vessels that have been purified and cleansed so that you could have relationship, so that you can empower our lives, so that we as humans could once again be a demonstration of you upon this earth. Because, Lord, this is not about us. This is all about you. And when the world looks at us, they are not to see us, they are to see you. Because this is all from you and through you and to you for your praise, glory, and renown. So, Lord, somehow could you do something in our lives where... You cause our gaze to be fixed upon you. Lord, what would it look like in the middle of our trials and our sufferings and our difficulties that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength? See, what, what would happen, Jesus, if we got so wrapped up in you that when the world looks at us, they, they don't just see us, they just oh, they, they see the evidence of Christ within us. That they actually see you living your life in and through us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. See, what, what if our lives truly became impossible to describe outside of you? See, what if our attitude, and what if our behavior, and what if our language, and what if our thought life, and, and what, if, what if just the essence of our being, and what if our actions were not chalked up to us, but could only be explained in terms of you? Lord, I need a fresh revelation of your resurrection. And Lord, we sing about your death. And hey, we put up the crosses, and I think that's awesome because it is a reminder of what you have done. But Lord, let us not forget that that the tomb is empty. That the veil has been torn and you have gotten out and you are alive. Lord, I want to live in light of that today. I don't want to just speak good words about you. I don't want to just sing good songs about you. I don't want to just hear more teaching about you. Somehow I want to experience the living God because you are alive. And Lord, our world desperately needs to encounter the living God. Lord, our world desperately needs to be confronted with you so Lord, will you use me as a vessel in whatever way you choose to declare that the King is alive? Lord, you are so good. And Lord, thank you that we have a God whom we can love and praise and praise Worship and serve and obey who is alive. That we don't live in some facade. We don't we don't live in some worship to some mystical thing. We we serve the living Savior. Lord, let us live in the light of the resurrection. And may you freshly remind us today that our whole faith hinges on the fact that you rose from the dead. Lord we praise you because you've you were not dead but alive. Lord we love you. Ah, oh, we love you. Just give the praise and the glory in your precious powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you'd like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.